0: It is a privilege to be here tonight. Uh, I'm really grateful to be a co-laborer with Ben, and just to get to hear amazing things about what's happening in this church plant and what God is doing. And one thing we talked about last week was we began to talk about how that the gospel is not just about this moment, okay? Many of us can think back to a moment where we responded for the first time of this message of what God had done for us through Christ. Right? Hopefully you can, you can maybe even go back in your head of that, of that time when you heard this for the first time. This idea of forgiveness of sins and Jesus' work on the cross. And so, if you're like me, you responded to that in whatever way that looked at the time. If you were at summer camp, that means you, you walked down to the campfire and you shared your little story of what God had done for you that week at summer camp, right? Um, if you're in church, which is where I was, I was seven years old, I walked down front, and I committed my life to Christ right there before the church on a Sunday night. I was seven. Um, I tell people all the time, the only thing I knew was that there were two, two destinies for someone. One sounded really fun and happy, and the other one sounded miserable, and so I wanted to go to the fun and happy one. But I think tonight what you're going to see is no matter how you and I came to hear this news of what Jesus has done, that Paul is saying that it was not just about that moment, but that in that moment, God started a movement in our life. When you think about the desire for a church plan, when you think about the desire for a new community of believers to take hold in a city or in a town, I'm not sure what you consider Palm Bay. Right? But when you talk about what you want to happen and you want to see the gospel take hold, we want to see a movement of the gospel. Right, We want to see our friends, our families, we want to see them responding to this thing that has become so dear to us. So the question I'm going to challenge us with tonight, we're going to look at the second part of the text that we didn't get to look at last week. But I want to challenge us with this idea, of, is Jesus enough? So in the past few weeks, one of the things that's happened for me personally is that a lot of this news of racial reconciliation has sort of come, and I found myself for a while really responding um, without even thinking about God. And I know that may sound weird to you, but what I mean is it almost felt like it was a societal problem, and I realized that there was something weird going on inside of me because my initial response was, oh, we need to do this with this policy, or we need to start here, or, we need to look at this institution, or we need to change this, or whatever. And the more and more that I, that I thought through it, and the more and more I prayed about it, I realized, no, this has everything to do with the one that Paul is going to put in front of us today. This has everything to do with Jesus. So one of the ways that the gospel is a movement in our life, we talked about this last week, but is that it begins to shape our life, right? And so we talked about really just kind of three things that fall out of this. One was that we are called to be servants much like Jesus came to serve us. That's one way that the gospel shapes our life. Another way is that we should look at the heart of people and not just look at their outward appearance or their outward actions, much like Jesus did. And the third thing we talked about was just that we are to go through life Knowing that our treasure is in heaven, right? As Christians in this world, we all agree with that? I think we'd all agree with that. We would say that's hard to do on a daily basis, but in our mind, we know that's what we're called to, that our hope is in heaven with God. And so today, we're going to turn our attention to verse uh, Corinthians 13 through 20. I think Luke's going to put it up here on the screen for us, and we're just going to kind of, we're going to leave that up there, because as we go through this passage, We're just going to work our way through the passage. I'm not going to read it all at one time. I want to read it as we go because I want us to stop and sort of see what Paul's doing. So remember, Paul's writing to a church that he has never visited before. He's heard word of what's going on with them. And so Paul writes in a way to help encourage them to continue in their faith and not to turn back, but to continue to see this movement work its way out in their own life. And so he starts off with verse 13 and he says this, He has delivered us. Now, it's interesting, this is the one of the one places that Paul uses a past tense verb. Many of the next verbs you're going to see are all progressive verbs, okay? But why does Paul use a past tense verb here? It's because he wants to remind us that we are assured of this deliverance that has come with Jesus. That that work was finished on the cross. It is secure for us. Here's his history. Paul's speaking to a group of people who's never visited. I would have thought he would have said, he delivered you. Right? Paul knows all this. Paul's fully aware of what Jesus has done. He's devoted his life to it. matter of fact, at the moment, he's in prison because of it. But Paul says he has delivered us. And I think this is an encouragement to you and I for the fact that Paul immediately connects himself to what is happening in the life of this church that he's writing to. Okay, it's easy for you and I to think that in 2020 that you and I are not as much a part of God's redemptive work as someone like Paul was. Where you and I are not as much or as important a part as the original 12 disciples. But one of the things Paul is telling us, and Paul is speaking through the Colossians to us in today, to say that we are just as much a part of God's redemptive work. How is it that the kingdom will come to Pompeii, Melbourne? It will come through the work of his church. It will come through you and I loving one another. It will come through our faithful proclamation of the truth of God's word. And so Paul immediately connects himself to this current word. And I think it's because many people would have looked at Paul and said, oh, he's far more important than I am. And yet he uses the uh, the pronoun here, us, and Paul goes on to say this, he says, he, the one who delivered us, he has delivered us, and what has he delivered us from in uh, the continuation of verse 13? He says, he's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You see, at the core of the gospel, the gospel is about a work of transformation. There's something happening. And the first element of that transformation is a transfer. So what Paul reminds us is that our citizenship has been transferred. That you and I have been taken from the kingdom of darkness. We've been placed into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of his son. And maybe it's just me. But if you're anything like me, I sort of felt like I was in this neutral ground when God found me. That I hadn't decided if I was going to be a good person or a bad person yet. Right? I haven't done enough to really be put into the, oh, that's that's a you know, that guy's blown in. He's really in need of redemption. Remember, A, I was seven years old when I first heard this. But many of us are in that same boat. And one of the things Paul reminds us here is that none of us are standing neutral to God. We are either in the kingdom of darkness. Or we are in the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of life. There is no neutral ground. And so, if when you were a kid, so think back when you were a kid. Um, maybe it was a movie, maybe it was a book. But were you ever captivated by just an epic story? You know, maybe it was Star Wars. Maybe it was the Lord of the Rings. Whatever it was, there's something in our heart. I think one of the worst things about the pandemic is not being able to go to the movies right now. I don't know who feels that. But, But there's something in my heart, there's something in our heart that loves an epic story. And Paul is unfolding the fact that when Jesus came to this earth, it was the most epic of stories the universe has ever seen. That a hero leaves his home. We talked about this some last week. But a hero leaves his home and he comes here to find that which was lost. And he works, and he diligently searches out those who are part of his kingdom, and he brings them back to his father that they might be in relationship with him. So there's this great adventure going on, and Paul is reminding us very early in this that our citizenship has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the sad thing is this. For many of us, It is a kingdom of one that we've been liberated from. Right? And what I mean by that is, if you're anything like me, it doesn't take long for your heart to grow selfish, to grow prideful, to begin to think of everything and how it relates to you. Right? I have three great children. Um, They're all getting older. They're becoming their own people. And yet, oftentimes, I think of them as my children. Right? I, I look at it from my own perspective. And so part of God's liberation in the gospel is he liberates us from ourselves. From being trapped with just worrying about ourselves and worrying about what's ours and making sure that we're safe and making sure that we're comfortable. He invites us into this large story that he is playing out, the story of redemption. So how does he do this? So verse 14 In whom, so this beloved son is the one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So the forgiveness of sins here acts as a signifying symbol of you and I being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. What I mean by that is oftentimes we think of the gospel as merely the forgiveness of sins. We think of Jesus' work as ending on the cross when he forgave sins. And it's not. It really is the part that ushers us in to this thing that God is doing into our life. And he's going to continue to do in our life. And ultimately, one day, He will finish that in heaven. But it says this. But Paul goes on to say something really remarkable here. Before I read this section, he says something really remarkable. Paul sets Jesus apart from all other religious leaders or historic figures. Paul is going to say that Jesus is not just a hero that's come to save us and make us right with God. We've, we've had many religious teachers that had come before Jesus that people had thought were showing them the path to have a right relationship with God. But Paul here immediately separates Jesus from any of those other people in verse 15 where he says this, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, Many of us grew up in church. Many of us, if we're even not Christians, if we're here just sort of asking questions, many of us know this. We know in our head that Jesus is God, that he is divine. Now, in the early church, this was oftentimes debated. There were heresies that popped up. There were councils that were had to have to cast teachers out of the early church who who stood against this and said, no, Jesus was just a man and so for Paul to say this, it is a big deal. And, and, and let me sort of put it in terms for you and I. I was listening recently to a sermon by Tim Keller, who's a former PCA pastor in New York. Uh, and anybody who knows me knows that I'm a Tim Keller fan. But Keller took this passage right here and he tied it to the second commandment of all commandments. If, if you can remember your ten commandments. Um, the second commandment is... Shall make for yourself no other image and bow down to it and worship it. Now, most of us modern people think that, that this is probably the commandment we're least likely to break. Right? I got this one. I'm not going to make a golden calf anytime soon. I'm covered here. I'm safe. The other nine, I may be in trouble, but number two, I can sort of check off my list. But Keller goes on to point out that really, though you and I aren't going to make a golden calf anytime soon, probably, he points out that there's a tendency in our heart to try to create God in our own image. And he connects the fact that early Christians sometimes would try to make this image almost so that they could define who God was. So why did the Israelites make a golden calf? Well, they wanted to show that God was strong. They made it out of gold. They want to show that God was pure. They had reasons why they made it out of a golden calf. But Keller beautifully points out that anytime time we, we create God in our own image, or we kind of say to ourselves, man, I can't imagine a God who would send people to hell. Have you ever found yourself saying that or heard someone else say that? Like, I can't believe in a God that would do that. Or, I can't believe in a God who would allow this pain and suffering in my life or in somebody else's life that I love. Right? We found ourselves saying that. And what we're starting to do is we're starting to create God in our image. And so when Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, what Paul's saying is, don't you dare create God the way you want to. He has revealed himself in Jesus. God is right there for you and I to know and to learn about and to gaze upon. Okay, um, I love one of my favorite characters in history is John Muir. Uh, he's one of the first people. I don't know if he's the first person, but he's one of the original people who found in Yosemite. If you ever been to Yosemite National Park, and he he just stayed there. He could not escape it. He it was so beautiful that he did not want to leave. And so, what John Muir would do is he stayed there for almost an entire year. He wasn't planning on it, but he sees this amazing place and he stays there. And what he would do is, every few days, he would kind of find a new place to hike up to. And he would look at it from all these different vantage points. So sometimes he'd stand down in the valley and he'd look up at Yosemite. How many, or, how many, not, yeah, Yosemite. How many of you guys have been there? Okay one, wow, okay um, you've seen it, like the Ansel Adams paintings, all that kind of stuff, half dome all that stuff you has to um, here's a guy who, he would stand at the foot and look up at half dome and then sometimes he climbed to the top of the mountain and he looked down at the valley right, and what is he doing? he's looking at it from all these different perspectives and what Paul is saying is why should you and I value God's word? because this is all these different perspectives of who Jesus is and who God is God has revealed himself in a son. Jesus is God made flesh, and God is transforming the believer into the image of a son. Paul elsewhere uses the language of imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So he has not only transferred our citizenship, but he is also transforming us. And so Paul goes on at the end of verse 15, he says this, the firstborn of all creation, verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. And so here's something I never thought about until this week. Now just call me slow or just call me, I don't know, I don't have a great memory, so sometimes I think I forget things I already knew and then I come back to scripture and I go, this is amazing, okay, but I think this is amazing. Do you know what Paul tells them to convince them to um, continue down this path of faith? He tells them that Jesus is the one who initiated and was central to the word of creation. So does Jesus show up just in the New Testament in Matthew 1 when we start this long liturgy of who Jesus was and where he came from? No, Jesus shows up in Genesis 1 is what Paul's telling us. Now, that's not, that That wasn't the new thing for me. The new thing for me was the beauty of Paul's argument. Because what is Paul arguing? That Jesus is the one who will transform us. We don't need anything but Jesus. We don't need to add one thing to Jesus. It's not, Jesus forgives you of your sins, and then you and I start keeping the law, is not Jesus forgives our sins, and then we kind of look at all these other mystic religions and we take from this we take from that. Paul's saying, Jesus is all you need. And here's what Paul's saying. The one who created is recreating you. Amen. You see that crazy connection? He's making this argument that the one who created in Genesis 1 is at work in you, and why in the world would you leave that? Why would you turn your back on it and say this can't answer the social injustice we're seeing in our country. Right? And I think as a church, we have to own up that there's been a lot of social injustice that was cloaked in religious language. And I think as a church, we need to own that. And what we need to say is, that wasn't Jesus. That was the way that it was being implemented or playing out in the lives of, of the church at the time. But that wasn't what Jesus is about. So Paul makes this argument that the one who created is now recreating you and I. Paul says this about him. He is the firstborn. He is the reason why all things were created. He has placed the rulers of this world on their thrones, and when he's done with them, guess what? When he's done with Donald Trump, when he's done with whatever religious leader you want to talk about. Them. When they have played out God's plan, God will just dismiss them because he doesn't need them. That's an amazing fact. Right? Paul's speaking to people who are in a few years going to be greatly persecuted. And what Paul's saying is everyone who sits on a throne anywhere has been given that privilege by God and when God is done with them, he will dismiss them from their position. He doesn't need a vote. He doesn't need you and I to agree with him. He doesn't need anything. He will dismiss them. So we have elections coming up, right? We're going through a pandemic. We have social unrest. You and I are facing fear about our future. I'm a principal right now. I have a lot of parents who aren't sure. Do I send my kid back to school? Do I not? What do I do? The reality is, even if we're facing fear about our future, they are no threat to King Jesus. And what a comfort. Right? And so, so, can you hear Paul's plea with these people? Paul is saying, you don't need anything else but Jesus. You don't need all these other gods. You don't need to do all this other stuff. You just need to rest in what Jesus has done for you and allow it to continue to Through the Holy Spirit to do its work in you. So picking back up in verse 17. He is before all things. And in in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything. He might have preeminence. So here. Paul bookends this idea of the fact that Jesus was present at creation with the fact that Jesus is the first fruits of this new creation. So not only is Jesus the one who's orchestrating, who had orchestrated creation, but he is now the centerpiece of this new creation that God is doing through Jesus' work on the cross. Paul, in in verse 19 and 20, I love this, um, he sort of pulls the thread of, of everything you know I don't know if you remember the old, uh, the old Weezer video where they pulled the thread right and slowly the, the sweater unwound. Do you remember this maybe you're around my age it's a beautiful thing look it up um, but Paul pulls the thread in, in verse 19 and he says this for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross And so here's what Paul does. He pulls the thread, the sweater unravels, and lo and behold, what does he find? He finds a man named Jesus, right? What are all things held together by? When we say all things are held together, this is gonna sound crazy, but this is what Paul's saying in Colossians. Paul's saying that gravity has to ask Jesus if it's okay for it to continue to do its job. That's what Paul's saying. Now, if that is true, believer, then what that means is you and I can trust him. We can put every ounce of who we are into what God is at work doing. And it's okay. We don't have time to read this, but I will just briefly, as I close, um, tell you this little story. Colossians ends, if you want to read it, um, verse two and three, or chapters two and three, they begin to talk about some of the things that, that the church is facing. And Paul begins to use this argument that he set up about Jesus being um, preeminent and, and and the most uh, supreme thing. Paul begins to apply this argument to what's happening with them. At the end of Colossians, something fascinating happens. Okay, now remember, this is just a letter to a church, me, which means there was a time that that letter traveled with a person and was delivered to this church, and then they read it because they were so excited to hear from the Apostle Paul, who was, who was suffering for Jesus in prison far, far away. Okay? And so in that moment, at the very end of the book, Paul says, some, he mentions someone, he mentions someone named Onesimus. And Onesimus had been a former slave. He had run away. And he had actually run away from this church. His slave master was in the church. And his name was Philemon. And Philemon is another book of the Bible. And you can read Philemon if you want to. But here's what's fascinating to me. When they hand that letter and they read this letter that Paul's talked about... Paul knows that as they're reading that letter, they're going to realize who has accompanied that letter. So Nestle is the slave that's come back. You know what Paul says in the book of Philemon? He says, um, except this one is a brother in Christ. He is no longer a slave. Matter of fact, at the end of things, chapter four in Colossians, he uses the language and reminds us that our master is in heaven. And so, I don't know about you, I can take the Bible sometimes and turn it into like this book that just like oh, like floated down from God and He said shoo, here's my word. Um, but God's far more powerful than that. He used real life events, he used real life people to write down the words that he knew you and I would need to hear thousands of years later. And so in this real life event, Paul says, here's a place for you to apply All that I've just said, here's Onesimus. Will you accept him back, not as a slave, not as a runaway? Matter of fact, more than likely what Onesimus did was he probably stole money and ran away because Paul says, whatever he owes you, Philemon, charge it to my account. Now, Paul can mean one of two things. Maybe Paul's just being arrogant and Paul's saying, You know, all of you hold me in really high esteem. so if you don't like this guy, he's with me. He could be saying that. More than likely what Paul's actually saying is, actually physically charge it to my account and I will pay you back anything he owes. And so, for you and I to come to Scripture and think that it does not apply or it's not applicable to our life and what we're facing today, no matter what it is. And I don't know what all you're facing. Um, I know what I'm facing. I'm facing a school that's in the middle of getting all these like renovations done, and I'm scared that like if I got sick for some reason and, and, and caught the virus, that I'm gonna be out for two weeks, and not everyone's gonna get everything done, and then we're gonna be in trouble when school starts. Those are some of the pressures I'm facing. You're facing your own pressures, right? But Paul is reminding us that Jesus is the answer to every one of those. Jesus, the one who created, is now recreating in us. And that this process is still working its way out in your heart and in my heart. Let's pray.